we are created in His image. So when God created Adam and He saw that Adam was alone, He said it's not good. Why? Well, because I'm not alone. And so the man who's created in my image needs to have someone, and so He created Eve. And with the coming of Eve, humans had community. There are concentric circles of community, from the nuclear family to the extended family to the neighborhood or the tribe or the city or the state. You know, the circles may expand or contract. Some of the language may change depending on where you find yourself in history and where you find yourself in the world. But human beings are created for community. That is the constant. Now, for us as Christians, for believers, for God's people, this community comes through covenant. You remember what covenant is? It's a relationship grounded in a promise. And as God's people, He sought us out and He saved us and He made a covenant with us. He said, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And that's that relationship, that vertical relationship that we have with God. All good, all true. Unfortunately, for most of us modern, Western-minded people, we think that that's the extent of it. But the truth is, is that when God saves us, He doesn't save us alone in a bubble. He saves us and then adds us to a group called His people. So when we enter into a covenant with God, we're not just entering into a relationship with Him, we're also entering into a relationship with each other. This is called a covenant community. And it's meant to be as close as family. Sometimes closer. What that means is that your actions, even the things that you do in secret, they will always impact other people. Even if you don't understand how. You know, when we're talking about marriage today in America and whether it's harmful or helpful for someone to marry somebody of the, op- of the same sex, the question always arises, well, how does it hurt anybody else? Well, I think the answer is that it does. And I'm not going to make this a whole sermon about that, but it does. But the point is that just because we can't understand how something affects other people doesn't mean it doesn't affect other people. And the fact is that inside the covenant community, the church, and outside, in just our normal community, our actions touch other people's lives. It's inescapable. It's part of how God has designed us to live in civilization. In verse 10, when Malachi asks, have we not all one father? Has God not created us all? He's really trying to get the Israelites to see that they don't live in a vacuum, that they're in covenant with God and each other, and that their sinful marriages don't just affect themselves. In the days of Malachi, where the political and ethnic components of your life were inextricably interwoven with the spiritual health of your community, to marry a pagan was to bring evil into the midst of your people. It was to invite idolatry and death into a people that were supposed to be covenanted with God and with each other for holiness. And this threat was so serious that God says that He's willing to cut off such a person in order to preserve the holiness of His people, much like a doctor willing to excise a tumor 
from the body of an otherwise healthy person in order to save that person's body. Well, just like the last two weeks, you may be wondering, well, Sean, what does any of this have to do with me? That's, that's the old covenant people. That's, that's the Jews, the Israelites. We're not those people anymore. What does that have to do with us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, you should know that this cutting off, it still exists. It just exists in a different form today. In the old covenant, to cut off could mean something that the Lord did. It could mean that you would be put to death. But the modern new covenant, that is the thing that exists in the life of the church, equivalent of that today, is called excommunication. It's called church discipline. Excommunication is where we cut off a person from the covenant community, not by killing them, but by removing them from membership. We put them out of the church. And this is how we protect our covenant community. This is how we prevent idolatry from entering into the church. If you look around and you see churches that are full of rampant idolatry, you just don't understand, how can, this, how can you guys claim to be Christians? You have your Bibles right there. How can so much idolatry exist in a place where you claim to be followers of God? I guarantee you, you will not find that church practicing church discipline. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And in excommunication, the Lord removes that leaven from the lump before it permeates and destroys the whole dough. And this is still true today for marrying unbelievers. Brothers and sisters of this church, you should know that if you marry an unbeliever, you will be excommunicated from this church. I'm really thankful for all the young single people in this church, but I'm also nervous. I know what it's like to be single, to be desperate for a husband or a wife, and to think, oh, maybe we can make it work. But to marry an unbeliever is to connect yourself with idolatry. What does Christ have in common with the world? Nothing. If you haven't heard excommunication taught on a lot, you may be wondering, well, Sean, isn't that unloving? If you're a member of this church, you have heard it taught on a lot, but you know what? You probably need to hear it again. The answer is no, it's not unloving. It's actually one of the most loving things you can do for somebody. You're telling them in the most forceful way possible. You're shouting it into their ear. You are on a path to destruction. You are uniting your life to sin and to Satan and to this world in the deepest way possible. I love you. Turn around. But more than that, more than loving the person, what about love for the Lord? And what about love for His people? What about love for this body? What about protecting this covenant community? The Lord says that He's willing to cut off the priests in order to preserve the priesthood. He says that He's willing to cut off these unfaithful members from the covenant in order to protect the covenant community. The same thing is still true today. If somebody breaks into my house, I would like to not shoot them. You know, I don't know, they're probably not going to go to heaven. It might feel unloving for me to shoot that person. But I love my wife, and I love Patience, and I love Isabella so much that I'm willing to shoot an intruder in order to protect them. In the same way, as much as I, we must love the individual members of the community, if somebody brings sin and idolatry and vice and brokenness and darkness into this church, we have to protect the covenant community. Not have to, we should want to. Ultimately, the 
end goal, the hope, is not that that person would leave the church, but that they would hear that excommunication as a cry of love and that they would consider their sin and that they would repent and turn back to the Lord. You'll notice that at the end of verse 15, as well as in verse 16, Malachi tells the people of Israel to guard themselves in the Spirit. The end of verse 16 says, quote, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless, end quote. And here's where the practical application comes in for us today. Like I said, by God's grace, this church has a lot of single people in it, young single people. And the temptation will be for you to marry somebody who's not a Christian. Do not do it. You must guard your heart. You must protect your spirit. When we see something that we want, even if it's not good for us, even if we know we shouldn't have it, because God has specifically told us that we shouldn't have it, it is amazing the way that we find a path to justify our sinful decisions. It is incredible as a pastor to sit back and watch. I know that this person knows the truth. I know that they know that this thing is bad for them. I know that they know that God says that they shouldn't do that, this, that it's bad or that it's unwise. And to, to, to watch people, to see it in myself, find a way to twist and manipulate and mold to, to justify doing something that we know we shouldn't do. It's, it's just, it's incredible. And... Uh, there are a couple of different ways that we try to justify marrying unbelievers. We try to justify this faithful, faithlessness. One of them is what we call dating evangelism. Right? It's this idea that maybe if I date this person and eventually even marry this person, I can lead this person to the Lord. This is probably the worst evangelism strategy there is. It is very, very bad. Not only is it very bad, it has a success rate of almost zero in actually leading people to conversion. And this is usually followed up by the I know a guy justification, right? Well, you know, my friend, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, cousin, mom married an unbeliever. And then that unbeliever ended up getting saved after they were married for like five years and it worked out and... Brothers and sisters, this is not how we make decisions in our lives. I can hit myself in the head with a ball-peen hammer and learn how to speak a third language through some crazy brain science. That doesn't mean that this should be expected. It doesn't mean that it should be expected to be the normal course of life. I should kind of just go according to the rules and standards. And God has plainly spoken in His Word about these rules and standards. He said that we don't marry people who worship other gods. We don't violate a clear command of Scripture in the hopes of leading someone to Christ. Think of any other time that you might try to employ that same logic. I'm going to sin in order to evangelize someone. I'm going to display faithlessness in order to lead someone to faith. I'm going to walk in disobedience in order to help bring someone into obedience. 
Sounds silly. Because it is. Now, sometimes Christians, when they come to realize what God's Word has to say about these matters, they, they find this truth once they've already been in a pretty long-term relationship. Some of them, even after they've already married an unbeliever. Uh, to be clear, brothers and sisters, I think Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about what uh, a spouse should do if they find themselves converted in a relationship with an unbeliever, the answer is you do not divorce. You just stay in the marriage and you try to win that person with love. But for those who may find themselves in a dating relationship, then comes the, the question of, well, if I break up with this person, maybe I'll push them away from Jesus forever. So I have to stay in a relationship with them so that I don't break their hearts and leave them jaded towards Christians and towards Jesus. Well, friends, this, this shows that we don't really have a good understanding of conversion when we think like that, right? Conversion is not something we do. Conversion is something that God does. In order for that boyfriend or girlfriend to come to Jesus, He has to move and change their hearts. You aren't responsible for what may or may not happen to somebody else's heart in light of you walking in obedience. You just have to worry about being faithful. And you try to be as Christian as you possibly can as you break up with that person and just leave the rest up to the Lord. Now you may be thinking, well, if, it, if I'm not married to them, then technically I'm not sinning, so I could just stay in a relationship with them and just wait for them to get saved. And if they don't, maybe eventually I'll break up with them. Well, you can see at the outset just how foolhardy that line of reasoning is. Not only are you wasting a good chunk of your life for something that may or may not ever happen that's totally up to the sovereignty of the Lord, but you're also being particularly unloving to that person because to stay in a relationship with a person that you know you can't marry unless they get converted is to give them false hope. It's to make them think that there's a chance when in reality there is no chance. Or if there is a chance, you have no idea what it is. You also may be unloving to that person by subtly and consistently pressuring them to convert to your religion. You know, Christians often end up giving ultimatums, you know, even if they don't give them explicitly. All right, if he, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do this much longer. You know, if he's not, married by the if he's not a Christian by the time I'm 31, we're going to call it off. Well, that, that creates pressure for that person to feel like they have to become a Christian in order to be with you. But that's not why we become Christians. That's not how it works. We don't have a, a Muslim or a Roman Catholic understanding of conversion. We become a Christian when we realize that we're dead in sin, that we need a Savior to rescue us from the wrath of God. We come to Jesus because we think He is beautiful, because we think that He is lovely, because we want to be with Him, not because we think our fiancé is beautiful, because we think he or she is lovely, because we want to be with him or her. A conversion that's done just so you can stay in a relationship with someone is no conversion at all. And if you stay in a relationship with an unbeliever, you may be leading them down this path of false conversion. Finally, and most naively, I think we see Christians marry non-Christians because they think that they can make it work. They think they can make it work. <coughs> For a Christian to marry a non-Christian is not the same thing as a Presbyterian marrying a Methodist. 
It's not the same thing as an old school Church of God gal marrying a good old Southern Baptist boy. It's not the same thing as a Pentecostal, I don't know, marrying something else. Despite what modern religion has taught us, our faith is not a private matter. It touches every aspect of our lives, from the way that we educate our children to the way that we spend and save our money. It affects our sex lives, our parenting, our conflict resolution, our career path, our everything. What we do on a Sunday when we wake up in the morning. Is this going to be my time or is it going to be God's time? All of this is affected by what we believe, whether or not we're Christians. And marriage to an unbeliever will lead you down one of three paths. One, happiness. But this is probably the most unlikely. Because the only way that it will lead you down to happiness is if God does something incredible and saves that person. And we already said that that can't be presumed upon. The more likely are the last two options. Divorce. It will lead you down the path to divorce because you have fundamentally different beliefs about everything that matters from the person that you're marrying. You have fundamentally different beliefs about everything that matters in order to have a healthy marriage. Now you may say, well, I know a believer and an unbeliever who are married today. Maybe they might as well be divorced because they're just living in such misery. If not, third option, you end up compromising on your faith in order to make the marriage work. Well, Brother Sean, marriage is all about compromise. Yes, but you don't compromise your faith. You shouldn't put yourself in a position walking into a marriage where you have to compromise your faith in order to stay married, in order to not be completely miserable in your marriage all the time. I know somebody who has family who, you know, they're certain that the mother was a believer, but married to an unbeliever. Well, the mother spent most of her life practicing her religion privately in the home, praying privately, carrying her faith inwardly because she couldn't go to church on Sunday because her husband didn't want to do it. If the kids wanted to go to church, they had to go with the grandparents. This is the kind of compromise that you have to have in order to make marriage to an unbeliever work. And friends, that is not compromise you want. It's faithlessness. So, single people, protect your heart. Protect your spirit from this temptation. Well, Sean, how do I protect my heart? How do I, how do I protect my spirit? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you three ways. Number one, consider the examples in Scripture. One of the precious gifts that God gives us in Scripture is the gift of other people's mistakes. We don't have to make the same mistake that Abraham made or David made or Solomon because we can read the Scriptures and we can see their mistakes and we can profit and learn from them and we don't have to go through them ourselves. An example of this is Solomon. Solomon was a great, mighty king, son of the amazing King David. He ruled well in divine wisdom for many, many years. But then he fell. 
What led him astray? Women who worshipped foreign gods. Nehemiah, as he's going around ripping people's beards out and beating them for marrying non-Christians, which is what I am half inclined to do if any young person in this church marries a non-Christian. Wait, marrying unbelievers. But yeah, chance your beard is just ripe for it, man. I swear, if you bring a non-Christian girl in here, I'm just going to grab a hold of your beard. But as, as he was going around preaching to these people, he used Solomon as a sermon illustration. He said, was it not because of marriages like these, marriages to unbelievers, that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign wisdom. If Solomon can't make it work, you can't make it work. I know you. I know every single one of you. You're no Solomon. Consider the example of Scripture. Number two. To the young single people in this church, you have to fight. And it is a fight. You have to strive. It is a wrestle. It is a battle. You have to fight to have a deep and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to strive to find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ above all else. You have to have a strong and robust relationship with your God. When you're walking with God in this way, you find less of a need to seek fulfillment in things of this world. Drugs and alcohol, career, education, women, men. When you are walking in a deeply committed relationship with the Lord, it's easy to not get involved with bad relationships with men and women, romantically. Number three, make sure that you are deeply committed to the other members of your covenant community. That's the church, right? We're in covenant together. And by the way, one of the things that makes this not a cult is that you're free to come and go as you please. You don't have to stay in this covenant. But if you're going to be here, if you chose to be here, if you signed the dotted line and you agreed to be covenanted with this community, you agreed to be deeply committed to us, to love us, to care for us, to serve us, and to be loved and to be cared for and to be served by us. And it's so hard to be faithless to the members of your covenant community when you're busy loving them. It's hard to be faithless to them with your sinful actions, with the relationships that you build, when you're being actively loved and cared for by these members of the covenant community. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's certainly possible. But it's a lot harder. A strong relationship with the Lord must necessarily lead to a strong relationship with the Lord's people. And that will help you protect and guard your heart. One of the things that they'll do is they'll tell you they're committed to you as well. The health of the community depends on how well all of us are doing in our covenant faithfulness. So what that means is that we have an obligation. If we see Chancellor come in here one day with a young girl and we talk to her and she says, no, actually, I'm a practicing Buddhist, we're going to go and say something to Chancellor about it. We're going to love him and encourage him and challenge him. Take away his phone, maybe. Block her number. But we are going to help each other to be faithful. Faithfulness is not a game meant to be played with one person. This is a community endeavor. And when your friends tell you the truth, 
when they tell you that you're in a relationship with a person that is not good for you, that will ultimately lead to sin, it's not because they're against you. It's not because they don't love you. It's precisely because they do love you. It's precisely because they don't want you to see, they don't want to see you be cut off from the covenant community. And all of this is just an overflow of the gospel, brothers and sisters. You see, the the fact is, is that all of us are unfaithful. All of us are unfaithful to God and to each other. And we all deserve to be cut off. But we're not. Why? Well, because Jesus took on this penalty. He took on the curse of the covenant. And He, on the cross, was cut off from the covenant community. He took the penalty of covenant faithlessness so that we might walk and be fully faithful to our God and to each other. And it's my prayer that our lives and our marriages honor our covenant Lord and honor each other. Lord, give us grace.